Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend, uh, regardless of where you live in the world. Uh, But I hope all of you are doing well, and I'm glad to be back on the air because we have another um, great segment ahead of us in Andrew Waters' To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. In this um, particular segment that we will be discussing, we're going to learn more about Nathaniel Green's uh, background in terms of where he um, grew up, uh, the year he was born, Uh, But we're going to learn really how he um, came about uh, being in the Continental Army. You know, obviously, um, it is fair to say that, you know, come uh, late 1780, he finally gets the, um, he finally gets the role that he deserves, but it's not so much what he knows he deserves, it's what the man above him knows that the guy below, being green, deserves the man above being General George Washington. So in other words, we need to know more about Nathaniel Green prior to his um, being chosen uh, commander of the Southern Continental Army. So our uh, first leadoff question for this uh, segment is the following. Were there many men within Southern Continental Army whom already knew and served with Nathaniel Green prior to his arrival south. So, in other words, uh, the question being the following, uh, were there many men within the Southern Continental Army whom already knew and served with Nathaniel Green prior to his um, coming uh, south? What do you all think? Now, of course, when I say many men, that You know, we could be referring to, say, just uh, everyday soldiers, that is, like, say, the ranks of uh, privates. We could also, when we say many men, we could also be referring to um, officers. We could be referring to just about anybody, but I do believe that it would be fair to say that there were um, a good number of men uh, within the Southern Continental Army whom already knew Nathaniel Green prior to uh, 1780. As a matter of fact, uh, later on in this segment, we will uh, mention um, other um, officers' names whom um, will play a, um, a role, or not just a role, but a, they will play pivotal roles in the Southern Campaign. Some of them already have. Uh, It would be fair to say Thomas Sumter uh, being one of those uh, men who has already played a pivotal role considering that he uh, led a group of uh, 400 men under his command that went about disrupting uh, the British uh, supply wagons uh, on August the 15th uh, being the day before uh, the Camden uh, debacle under um, Horatio Gates' ineffective leadership. Uh, One individual I can tell you right now, uh, and we'll discuss him uh, at some point later on in the podcast segment, whom uh, did in fact know Nathaniel Green prior to the Southern Campaign start. His name was uh, Colonel Otho Holland Williams of Maryland. Colonel Williams uh, knew Nathaniel Green as far back as uh, 1778. When, um, at the time of the uh, Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey battle campaign from uh, June of that year. So, 
it is fair to say that we, so far, we could say that uh, we know of someone whom already uh, knows Nathaniel Green, not just by name, but has served uh, directly with him in a uh, battle campaign. So it is good to know that there is um, a connection with someone. It's good to know that um, that Nathaniel Green um, won't be going into um, territory where everybody whom he'll meet is a complete stranger. Um, it is one thing to meet people that you've never met before, but at the same time, it would be a good thing to know that where you're going, you will be uh, meeting up with people whom you had worked with in a from a previous capacity. Sometimes, you know, one could say, well, that may not be a good thing, depending on um, what um, circumstances circumstances there may have been in the past. But I think it's fair to say that given the way things are by 1780, everybody really needs to be on the same page. It's a shame that Horatio Gates really wasn't on the same page as the officers below him. I still find it to be a miracle that he allowed Thomas Sumter to send a, a group of 400 men under his command to be able to disrupt the British supply wagons in the manner that they were able to that um, led to um, success at that time being the capturing of 400 wagons, but of course only in the end for Sumter himself to have been uh, caught by surprise uh, two days after the debacle at uh, Fisher's Creek where um, Sumter and his um, group of um, a group of soldiers below him, I should say, were forced to give up those uh, supply wagons, but in the end they were able to get their um, men whom were uh, taken prisoner under Colonel Tarleton's command back in their um, neck of the woods, or back under their watch, I should say. So so for, Nath for Nathaniel Green, at least we can say that um, he will have uh, advantages to his side going uh, down south, knowing that there will be um, officers that he will be uh, reacquainted with from uh, previous uh, campaigns. But anyways, uh, what I think is also worth pointing out here is that, you know, when, when we think of officers in the American Revolutionary War, um, we often think of George Washington, not just because he was the commander of the Continental Army, but whenever I think of Washington from a physical appearance, the guy is rather tall. I mean, he is between 6'2 and 6'4. I do know that Thomas Jefferson was at least 6 feet 2 inches tall. And in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was very unheard of for a man to be over 6 feet in height. Um, I think most historians know that the average man's height, like in the 17th century, was between about was between 5'7", 5'10". Um, I know for a fact that I myself am five feet eleven inches tall, so I would have been in the seventeenth in the eighteenth century. I would have been right on that borderline between um, what was uh, normal height versus uh, height that would have been unheard of. So yes, whenever I think of George Washington, I, I think of him as just being this tall individual, and given of his height and all that being very unheard of, you know, six four. But hey, um, to be able to be a commander of something, I think it would be fair to say that you would want to have someone who is um, visible. And by being visible, meaning um, that he ha has a, a lot of height. Being tall, you can't um, miss the guy. Well, Nathaniel Green's physical appearance is the opposite of General Washington's. 
that's not a, necessarily a bad thing. I mean, of course, one could say, well, if George Washington's attractive, what, what is Nathaniel Green um, non-attractive? No. What I mean by that, this, folks, is that whereas Washington would have been, you know, say very tall height-wise, Nathaniel Green uh, would have been the opposite, being that he was not uh, six feet in height. Uh, anyways, Nathaniel Green's physical appearance is opposite of General Washington's. However, Nathaniel Green made up for any disadvantages from a physical standpoint with strong intellectual learning skills that enabled him to solve complicated issues when they arose. And when I refer to complicated issues here, folks, how about um, complex issues that um, would pertain to the Revolutionary War itself, most notably uh, of what lies ahead with the conflict in the Southern Campaign? But it is fair to say that maybe Nathaniel Green has learned um, some things that will uh, be of use to him prior to even going south, but as the war um, begins to unravel between, um, between the Continental Army and uh, the greater British force. So in other words, Nathaniel Green um, will go about learning tactics that he will eventually take with him in actual uh, battlefield campaigns. So anyways, uh, we should find out for ourselves right now this question, or rather I should say the answer to this question. What year was Nathaniel Green born? I'll give you a um, time range. He, was, he would have been born in this year, uh, but the range is between 1740 and 1750. What year do you think he would have been born between that um, between that uh, time frame of 1740-1750? The answer is 1742. So Nathaniel Green was born on July the 27th of 1742. And where do you all think he hailed from colony-wise? Was he born in Virginia? Was he born in Pennsylvania? Or was he born in Rhode Island? The answer is choice C, folks. He was born in Rhode Island. He was born in a place called Potawomut. That's the best I can uh, pronounce it, but it, uh, the pronunciation is P-O-T-O-W-U-M-U-T. Potawomut. <laughs> Part of Warwick, Rhode Island. He grew up in a Quaker household. Okay, so what religion or religious faith is it fair to say that Nathaniel Green is... Um, uh, belongs to in terms of religious sect. He is a Quaker. He is one of seven siblings, and he is the fourth oldest in a family of seven boys. Interesting, my uh, grandmother was uh, the second youngest of seven girls. <laughs> and now I uh, look at um, Nathaniel Green. He is the fourth oldest in a family of seven boys. Very interesting to say the, the least in terms of uh, the family uh, dynamic um, there. Now, Nathaniel Green, folks, I should say that he um, he doesn't come from a, how do I say it, um, Nathaniel Green is not what we call from an aristocratic family. He's not from a poor family. It would be fair to say that Nathaniel Green came from a uh, middle class or what we might even think of in today's time as upper middle class. 
his father, uh, it just so turns out that Nathaniel Green is Nathaniel Green Jr., making his father Nathaniel Green Sr. Nathaniel Green Sr. Uh, was a very well-to-do merchant. Okay, so if he's a merchant, it's also fair to say that he's a businessman, another term for merchant. Of course, when I think of uh, merchants uh, during this time, uh, another fellow who comes to my mind uh, from Massachusetts, uh, for those of you who were with me when we did American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, when I think of uh, well-to-do merchants during the colonial era, I often think of John Hancock of Massachusetts. But then again, his uncle, being Thomas Hancock, was the one that started this uh, fortune. And then when Thomas uh, Hancock died, his nephew, John Hancock, whom pretty much apprenticed under his uncle, took over the family fortune before he was the age of 30. Talk about talk about inheriting a, um, a family fortune under the most uh, unexpected of circumstances, knowing that his uncle uh, passed away unexpectedly. But anyways, as for Nathaniel Green's father, um, he was a well-to-do merchant. So, of course, being a merchant, you know, that could mean uh, any kind of business. Well, it turns out that Green's father owned a store. He owned a sawmill, a flour mill, a forge. Do any, any of you all know what, like, a forge might refer to? Think of, like, iron, uh, maybe steel, uh, blacksmith, you know, a shop where there is um, intense labor production. How about a wharf? What is a wharf, folks? W-H-A-R-F. A wharf would have been a, um, an area along a river, or, or in a port town, rather, I should say, where uh, ships would come to unload their goods, or it would also be a docking ground spot where ships would be loading, uh, would have their goods uh, loaded onto the dock uh, for um, departure purposes. So basically wharves are, you know, they're basically, uh, I don't know if we would call them homes, but they are outlets that cater to commercial ports uh, sections along a river where uh, ships are coming and going with goods. So Green's father owns a wharf. It would make practical sense. You know, hey, he's a merchant, so, you know, goods, you know, he's got to see to it that the goods uh, that are being loaded on a ship are not only loaded properly, but are going to get to their destination. Goods that are being unloaded are going to go to his uh, various shops so that uh, people will be able to buy what is uh, necessary for their uh, households. And um, Green's father also owns warehouses. Hey, you know, warehouses are still in use today where, um, where all kinds of um, products are, uh, or and commodities get stored. And if that's not enough, folks, um, Nathaniel Green's father also is big into shipping and real estate. Well, if you are a merchant, I think you would have to be big into shipping because it does, it's commerce, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, you know, think about it, it's not just commerce itself, but, you know, the coming and going of uh, goods all in and around the harbors themselves, and real estate, land, so if, it would make practical sense for Green's father to have these uh, kinds of interests. Nathaniel Green's father was so successful of a businessman that by 1763, 
he was Warwick, Rhode Island's second highest taxpayer. So think about this. Being the second highest taxpayer, that means that he he's made so much money that for whatever amount of money he's paying in taxes, he's going to get a lot back. Nathaniel Green Jr. and his brothers worked within the family businesses. Okay, that, that's good. And that could probably pay uh, dividends down the road because we've already learned and we'll learn again in this segment about Nathaniel Green's uh, time as uh, quartermaster general. So for Green and his brothers, they work within the family businesses which help the younger Green become successful as quartermaster general of the Continental Army. Uh, did Nathaniel Green Jr. receive an education? Yes. However, was his education like on the equivalent uh, scale of you know, say a uh, someone of a higher end uh, status uh, like that of a Lee or a, a Bird or a Carter. Um, you know, those families could give their children, um, you know, private tutors. Did Nathaniel Green get a private tutor? No. Did he go abroad to England to study? No. But Nathaniel and his siblings got assistance, or rather, I should say, teaching assistance from an itinerant teacher. An itinerant teach, teacher being one who goes about from one place to another in teaching uh, students in uh, various uh, subjects. Now, um, Nathaniel Green's family, we've already established, was of Quaker faith background, and Green's education in included attending Quaker meetings, where he learned and obtained information on a variety of topics, most notably politics, which were frequently discussed within the Green household. Well, politics, even in Nathaniel Green's time, was something that couldn't be ignored, uh, most notably considering that when he was, oh, say about 13, 14 years old, the Seven Years' War begins. So that's a topic that, uh, yes, would involve politics and, and a matter that, uh, could not be ignored and was probably discussed a lot within the Green household. What I found interesting here too is that, Nath is that Nathaniel Green met a fella uh, who would go on to uh, do something really big. His name was Ezra Stiles. Ezra Stiles um, was one of many influential men in Nathaniel Green's life. But as a matter of fact, Ezra Stiles helped inspire Nathaniel Green to learn anything that fascinated him. Nathaniel Green becomes one of these individuals who takes up an interest who takes up interests in a variety of subjects. So Green's never-ending pursuit of knowledge ends up uh, requiring Nathaniel Green Sr. to go the extra mile by um, hiring out a tutor for his son. Okay. A private tutor here, folks. This private tutor is going to teach Nathaniel Green subjects like Latin and math. Do you think most children in Nathaniel Green's day, or let alone that of our forefathers, would have been able to have had a private tutor uh, who could have taught him, or most notably a young boy, uh, subjects like Latin, Greek, mathematics? Probably not. We have to remember the gentry make up oh, probably an elite 2 to 3% of uh, the greater society. That's a small percentage, but they are the ones that um, have the money, and they also have the money to hire out a private tutor whom can teach their sons 
the finer things in life. So what I should point out, too, about Ezra Stiles is that he would one day go on to become uh, president of uh, Yale College, or what we now know as Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And, uh, new, and uh, if any of you all want to know when Yale University was founded, it was uh, founded in the year 1701, five years before America's first founding forefather was born, being none other than Mr. Benjamin Franklin, whom was born in 1706. Now, how old was Nathaniel Green uh, come 1770? I'll give you um, an age range. Uh, it's between 25 and 30. But if he was born in 1742, and here we are now, 1770, how old would you say he is? He's 28. Because 42 plus 28 makes 70. 1742, the year he was born, and then 28 years later, 1770, Nathaniel Green, 28 years old. 1770 would be a... Um, it would be a tough year for Nathaniel Green, but for starters, whenever I think of 1770, I always think of that as the um, as the year of for which the infamous Boston Massacre event took place. But as for uh, Nathaniel Green in 1770, it was marked by um, hardship, considering that his father Nathaniel Se Nathaniel Senior died that that year. Is Nathaniel Green Jr. married in 1770? No, he's uh, single. Now, starting in 1770 and going onward, or rather I should say going forward, Nathaniel Green, uh, what city do you think he's going to and from um, a great deal? As a matter of fact, given that he's from Rhode Island, does Rhode Island border Massachusetts? Yes. So... If Nathaniel Green is going to and from uh, Massachusetts frequently, what city would he be going to in Massachusetts? Boston. And there is good reason for why Nathaniel Green is going to and from Boston frequently. For one, the situation has become really bad in Boston between the royal officials and the Patriot townspeople. Well, I mean, it's it, the massacre alone was bad enough, but things were really bad even prior to the infamous Boston Massacre taking place. But it's not just all the tension that's going on between royal officials and patriot townspeople. Another primary reason, or rather I should say the primary reason for Nathaniel Green's frequent visits to Boston, center upon acquiring political and military books. Remember folks, you know, Nathaniel Green is interested in, in a variety of, of subjects. Would it be fair to say that if he's interested in a variety of subjects, and given that he has worked within the family business, that wouldn't he find it interesting to acquire more knowledge about political and military matters, especially knowing that there is conflict in the state next door and how the events that are unfolding in Boston will have impact on Nathaniel Green himself? I, I would say yes. Okay, well, let's keep in mind that there is no such thing as Barnes and Noble bookstore in uh, in the seven, in the eighteenth century, and there is no Amazon. Uh, so, where can Nathaniel Green? Uh, yeah, he can go to a bookshop, but 
will he meet anyone in particular that will have a um, significant impact on him in Boston? Absolutely. His name is um, Henry Knox, a Patriot supporter and a future Continental Army officer who would be a part of um, George Washington's inner circle. So yes, Nathaniel Green's primary contact in Boston will now be um, Henry Knox, who is a, um, seller, a bookseller, and he is not just a bookseller, but he uh, provides Nathaniel Green with all the information that he needs uh, from a political and uh, military um, perspective in terms of what he should be reading. You know, whenever I think of the Enlightenment, I often think of, you know, people like John Locke, uh, Voltaire, um, you know, just to name a few of a few um, individuals. Of course, the Enlightenment was a time where people were able to uh, freely express their thoughts. They were able to uh, challenge uh, findings that had been on the books for years. Well, uh, another good example I could relay is how about uh, Nicholas Copernicus, uh, the Polish astronomer, whom uh, was able to um, debunk um, the old um, geocentric model of uh, Aristotle's, because back in Aristotle's time, Aristotle was firmly convinced that all of the, the planets that were in existence at the time revolved around the Earth. Nicholas Copernicus came up with what was known as the heliocentric model during the Enlightenment era, and he, uh, well, I take it back. Maybe this was before the Enlightenment era, but it had it was revolutionary for its time. Copernicus was able to prove uh, to the skeptics that um, that the planets do not revolve around Earth, but rather around the Sun. But it's a revolutionary um, ideal for its time. So, yes, when we think of the Enlightenment, we think of more as it being the age of reason the age of challenging old uh, convictions. But it just so happens that during the Age of Enlightenment, Nathaniel Green, yes, he probably did learn about people like Voltaire and Rousseau and Locke, but he's also studying individu about individuals whom were um, instrumental in their own ways by... Uh, by doing things that were uh, unconventional, that uh, broke ranks with uh, conventional um, tactics, that is from a militaristic standpoint. So, during the Age of Enlightenment, Nathaniel Green uh, was impacted significantly through uh, studying such in, um, works, that is, Enlightenment military um works through a figure such as a fellow by the name of Maurice de Saxe, and that is spelled S-A-X-E. Some of us would say Saxe, but I'll pronounce it as Saxe. What I found uh, unique about this fella is that he um, instituted some of the earliest known versions of light infantry. And what do we mean by light infantry, folks? Uh, soldiers whom are carrying less um, equipment on their backs, soldiers who have the means of moving fast from point A to point B, and, tr and they are transporting um, 
they're transporting provisions, but the provisions aren't um, heavy. They could be transporting, for all we know, three and six pound cannons, but they don't require. Um, but they can be transported at a much faster pace, whereas a traditional cannon, being on a wagon, a traditional wagon is going to take you know a little bit longer. Uh, but anyways, Maurice de Saxe uh, in instituted some of the earliest versions of light infantry, where there was. Um, faster uh, troop movement uh, in getting from point A to point B where they were not in uh, conventional um, marching units. And it wasn't just that 101 piece alone, but Maurice de Sox also instituted um, something known as Petite Guerre. When I think of Petite, well, we should all think of when we hear the word Petite, we think small. Petite Guerre a.k.a. Ir irregular warfare. And irregular warfare, I know I've already mentioned it a great deal, but I will tell you this, I'm going to mention it even more because it is relevant to talk about. After all, the Southern Campaign is all about doing things non-conventional. So, Petit Garay, a.k.a. irregular warfare, it's where small regiments attack an enemy's main support line, or I should say systems, with the primary intent of wearing them down over, sh over time, short and long term. These attacks come out of nowhere. The enemy doesn't realize what's hit them. And so if they try to go after the, um, after what you call it, the, um, those whom have whom have uh, launched the attacks on them, the enemy is going to you know try to go after them, but they're not going to be able to successfully find them. The further they go into territory that they're not familiar with, the greater the repercussions lie. So, in other words, this irregular style fighting will be something that will um, benefit one party, where whereas the other party will wear down over time to where they might they might come up on the losing end. They may have the numbers, they may have the greater um, overall advantages, but when it comes to doing things irregular, or rather I should say unconventional, that's where it will be a matter of make or break. So, I should point out here now that here Nathaniel Green has, okay, yes, we've established the fact that he is going above and beyond and, and using his time wisely and learning about these uh, great military figures from a previous generation like Maurice de Sox, who instituted, yes, the earliest known versions of light infantry, including Petit Guerret, a.k.a. Irregular Warfare. However, uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, was he born into an aristocratic family, folks? Yes. And by being born into an aristocratic family, do you have limited or unlimited privileges? It would be easy to say that you have unlim unlimited privileges. Although Cornwallis is an officer, and he, and he became an officer based upon a bureaucratic system that favored tradition, which included what one could and could not have access to, Cornwallis did have far more militaristic advantages from troops, 
weaponry and naval access. But what is but if you could find one thing that Cornwallis lacked, what was it, folks? He lacked Nathaniel Green's intellectual skills for diversifying warfare combat. Okay, so Cornwallis may have all the momentum going into his favor in South Carolina right now, considering that there was the siege of Charleston that proved um, that proved uh, to be to their advantage. They, you know, they have Charleston. They were able to take Savannah, Georgia, in late December of 1778 uh, without any uh, hurdles. Uh, they took uh, 96 South Carolina, uh, which was a trading post in the western part of that state. They not only have Charleston in their hands, uh, Camden uh, was the primary um, southerly uh, access point of the uh, Great Wagon Road that stretched from Pennsylvania down into uh, South Carolina and maybe into uh, Savannah, Georgia. And, of course, Cornwallis has all of... He is um, he's in such a good position, remember from the previous episode, where why Camden was such a big victory. He's got uh, good inland defense fortifications uh, well past, uh, well west of the coast. And all that's good, but the problem, though, is that even with all of these um, advantages, what is the one thing that he has not done? He has not, um, he, he is not um, engaging with um, intellectuals and intellectual um, adaptations, adaptations to where he ought to be diversifying his strategies. In other words, if we want to really, really defeat the um, Americans in the South, we need to change things up. Because if we don't, who knows what might happen? So uh, what happens, or rather I should say, takes place in 1774 impacting Nathaniel Green. Of course, when I think of 1774, I think of uh, parliaments passing those infamous intolerable, a.k.a. coercive acts, which uh, pretty much were designed um, as a retaliation measure for what took place in December of 1773. Okay, for those of you who are new to my podcast series, uh, what took place in December of 1773, the Boston Tea Party, and it was no little uh, fancy tea party, folks. It, it was about seven dozen men uh disguised as Mohawk as uh, Mohawk Indians uh, they peacefully escorted the um, the uh, ships of uh, the three um, the Dartmouth the Eleanor and the Beaver they peacefully escorted those uh, ships crew people off of their ships and went about destroying the chests of tea about 360 some chests of tea into uh, Boston's harbor, but as a result of destroying all the um, tea, because remember there was um, everything else had been repealed except the tax on tea. So as a result of destroying the king's uh, property, being all those tea chests, Parliament enacts these uh, coercive acts. Uh, one being the uh, closure of uh, Boston's port and relocating the uh, port to Salem, as well as Salem being the capital of Massachusetts, um, eliminating the town hall meetings, and the only time that the town hall meetings could come about uh, was through consent of um, royal officials, 
and then the courts being packed with um, jurors who were uh, loyal to king and country. So, yes, that's what I think of when 1774 happens, those infamous um, coercive acts. However, there is good news for Nathaniel Green in 1774. Of course, when I say good news, folks, it has nothing to do with switching car insurance to GEICO. But in 1774, Nathaniel Green gets married. He marries Catherine Littlefield, who is 12 years his junior. So if Nathaniel Green was born in 1742 and his wife being 12 years his junior, that means uh, she would have been born in 1754. So Nathaniel Green being 32 years of age in 1774, his wife being uh, just 20 years old. Now, um, besides getting married, um, I think it's fair to say that um, his uh, military um, presence will start um, having an impact. He goes about participating in the um, establishment of a Rhode Island militia unit known as the Kentish Guards. Green started out as a private. Okay, well, we've got to start somewhere, folks. We can't always start at the top, but he started out as a private. And on May the 8th of 1775, one month after, um, or close to one month after shots had been fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, Nathaniel Green got appointed Brigadier General. Of course, I know sometimes when we think of general, we often just think of being uh, just general by itself. But uh, for those of you who want to know where uh, Brigadier General is in, is in the overall rank of general status, um, if one is a Brigadier General, that means they have one star on their jacket. So basically, that's the entry point in working your way up to that elite status of general, like General George Washington became. So, yes, May 8th, May 8th of 1775, Green gets appointed Brigadier General within the state of Rhode Island. And on June the 14th of 1775, Congress, and this is important, folks, June 14th, because five days, rather three days after the 14th, and of course Congress doesn't know this just yet, but... Three days before June 17th, Congress establishes the Continental Army in Philadelphia, and during that time they will um, decide uh, whom will become the uh, next commander, but I think it's fair to say that even by that point that George Washington has already been chosen. But of course, three days um, after that, a um, battle will occur in Massachusetts, uh, Bunker Hill. But... The good news for Nathaniel Green is that not only has Congress established the Continental Army on June the 14th of 1775, but that Nathaniel Green's current military rank of Brigadier General will get transferred over, resulting in his being the Continental Army's youngest Brigadier General. So think about this, folks. He has gone now from Brigadier General within the state of Rhode Island now to the Continental Army of America. That's a huge um, rise in, um, what do you call it, of um, going from what we would say like state level to a national level. That's a huge rise, folks, and rightfully um, deserved. Now, do you, do you all think Nathaniel Green was just the only brigadier general in the Continental Army, or do you think that he was one of many brigadier generals? 
Well, it just so turns out that Green was one of eight brigadier generals in the Continental Army. Okay? Now, where do you think his first assignment, uh, battlefield-wise, took place? Did it take place in um, Trenton? Did it take place in New York? Or did it take place in um, Princeton? The answer is New York. The infamous New York uh, campaign of 1776 that was... Um, it was, a, um, it was a debacle for the Continental Army. It's a miracle that the Continental Army was able to uh, survive, but yet they did. But it was, a, um, it was a brutal campaign. Even Washington himself knew that it was going to be one of those campaigns that, um, that was nothing compared to um, what took place in Massachusetts. Largely in part because after the British left Boston, they um, many of their forces went to Nova Scotia to resupply. Uh, Nova Scotia was a strong loyalist um, post, and so many of the uh, ships that came from England um, eventually stopped in Nova Scotia before reaching their final point of being New York. But Washington uh, would see day in and day out while preparing, uh, in terms of defense preparations that the Continental Army was doing in New York, ships were coming in by the numbers, some days 50, other days 75 to 100 British warships were making their way into New York Harbor. And it was their way of pretty much saying, look, you all may have gotten us in Boston, or rather in Massachusetts, but now we're bringing the, the, nine, the whole nine yards, we're bringing everything, and our message is to crush this rebellion once and for all. Well, even, in, um, even though uh, the New York um, campaign was a debacle for the Continental Army, um, I'm still amazed even to this day that the British weren't able to finish us off there. But yes, for Nathaniel Green, his first uh, battlefield um, experience was in New York, and even for Nathaniel Green, it did not end uh, with good results. For one, um, he thought he could uh, hold on to uh, Fort Washington. And by uh, thinking that he could hold on to Fort Washington, um, it would prevent uh, further um, British um, takeover based upon the fact that they had already taken over so much. Nathaniel Green was doing what he could to hold on to whatever high ground was left. Unfortunately, um, Nathaniel Green was able to escape, um, but there were Continental troops and some officers whom were not able to escape. It was one thing for, this, uh, for Fort Washington to be surrendered to the British, but the British forces, British forces captured uh, 2,800 Continental troops and officers. Nearly a week after the Fort Washington campaign, General Green, Brigadier General Green found himself again between a rock and a hard place where he and his troops evacuated Fort Lee, protecting the Hudson River in the midst of an impending British attack. I tell you, I can't imagine being in this New York campaign, knowing just how, much, how many misfortunes the Continental Army had endured, because it just seemed like it was one disaster after another, but thank heavens the weather uh, cooperated because on because Washington uh, made a change in plans to where he knew that if he couldn't that 
he thought about keeping his troops at a particular uh, post along the banks of uh, one of the rivers, but he decided that it wasn't worth pursuing because if he stayed there any longer and a battle ensued, that that not only would it end in defeat, but possibly the end of the uh, cause itself for independence. So long story short, Washington orders the evacuation in the middle of the night. He's got some, he's got a, um, a certain number of troops who stay behind uh, doing things uh, that would, uh, that caused distraction, like rolling barrels uh, back and forth, even leaving fires open. In other words, a campfire open. And what do you know, by the next morning when British forces did arrive, they saw that the whole um, area was completely evacuated. So in other words, the British missed, their, missed a golden opportunity to um, annihilate Washington's forces. But, but we also have to thank, the, thank Mother Nature and the weather in general for making all of that happen. So Nathaniel Greene's misfortunes early on from this New York campaign did in fact help bolster his relationship with General Washington. I find, you know, most of us would think that's hard to believe knowing what a disaster it was, but look, you know, we're just a bunch, we're a ragtag group of men, and there are going to be some mistakes on, along the way, but it's up to us to keep this flame of independence or this greater cause alive because if we don't then who's going to do it so yes these misfortunes on nathaniel green's end from the new york campaign did help bolster his relationship with general washington each of them sought to learn from their battlefield errors and press forward however there is good news to report before 1776 came to an end, the Continental Army, including uh, Nathaniel Greene, Brigadier General Greene himself, got their redemption on Christmas night, 1776, when General Washington's forces crossed the Delaware River and attacked a Hessian post at Trenton, New Jersey, capturing over 900 Hessian troops. The victory at Trenton restored Continental Army morale and it also kept the flames of independence alive, considering that the Trenton attack, or the mission behind this attack alone, was marked by a message that was uh, penned by Washington himself, victory or death. Basically a do-or-die situation, enlistments are down, morale is low, desertions are high. Yes, the, the primary tradition is to rest during the winter, I don't have this luxury. I've got to do something. And so, thanks to an informant, Washington seized the opportunity, and history was on his side. And had it not been for this, had it not been for Trenton, we would probably have been uh, returned to um, subjects of the uh, crown. Did Nathaniel Green become a quartermaster general in 1778? Yes. This uh, job post uh, focused on supplies, logistics. Of course, when we think of logistics, how about planning, coordinating, to uh, transporting or transportation practices? And it would be fair to say that uh, having worked in the family business helped him significant, significantly in this post. Although it did... Um, he held the post for two years and was able to work up a uh, set portion. Uh, what I mean by set portion, folks, is a commission on where Green himself got a certain percentage 
per all items obtained for the Continental Army's use under his watch. As the Continental Army's budget increased, so did the number of delegates within Congress whom questioned his business practices. We're supposed to be unified, and now we've got people in Congress questioning? <laughs> that still hasn't gone away, even in today's, uh, today's uh, world. But, um, yes, there were some in Congress whom thought Green deliberately raised prices on items or rather I should say provisions, only to gain personal profits for his own use while leaving others left to fend for themselves. You know, conflict is inevitable, but Nathaniel Green is very offended and hurt by this because he knows that he's not taking advantage of, of other people, and he knows for a fact that if, if anybody truly thought that he was taking advantage, that they would have had the decency by now to tell him that, hey, look, we know what you're doing and it's not right. So Nathaniel Green is appalled by these accusations from those in Congress whom questioned him nonstop. And, and come, the su come summer of 1780, he resigns from the post. He wants back on the battlefield. Can you blame the guy? No. Whom would Nathaniel Green rely more upon for unwavering support in the Revolutionary War's Southern Campaign. Whom do you think he relied more upon? Well, it turns out, folks, that he turned uh, to fellow high-ranking officers, including the soldiers in their uh, regiments, or I should say units, considering that these high rank other high-ranking officers, including the soldiers fighting below, would be the ones whom shared the same values of long-term commitment behind America's cause in securing its independence from England. So in other words, yes, Nathaniel Green can get support from Congress. He could get some support. He could get support from the greater public, but could he get full 100% broad support from, say, Congress and from the greater uh, public? No. Broad support from the greater public to politicians in Congress behind the Revolutionary War was one of constant fluctuations. Okay, when when things were going well, yeah, people were all behind um, behind this movement, most notably when uh, Washington's forces successfully drove the British out of Boston in the aftermath of the Siege of Boston. People were putting Washington right away on a pedestal. Washington didn't like that because he pretty much said, look, We've, we're nowhere close to victory. You watch. They'll come back. And what do you know? They came back in droves to New York and almost annihilated us. So, and of course, when things didn't go well, like in New York, people, people were wondering if even Washington should be replaced. So there are constant fluctuations, highs and lows. So for Nathaniel Green... He needed, he needed these people's support, but it wasn't always reliable, most notably when the going got tough for the Southern Continental Army, most notably after the Camden debacle, prior to his nomination of uh, receiving the general, um, receiving the um, rank of um, not just general, but the um, post of being commander of the Southern Continental Army. So yes, uh, having support you would think is automatic, but it's not a guarantee. And it is fair to say that 
Maybe it's not dead set at being one-third, but it is fair to say that you have a certain portion of Americans whom are uh, for independence. You have a certain portion who want to stay loyal to king and country, loyalists. And then you have those whom are undecided. Bigger question is, who can you really trust? So General Green knew what was at stake, given just how bad the situation itself in the war's southern campaign had already shown. But to his benefit, the army he would, he would be inheriting comprised of officers whom knew Green personally, including having served with him from the time the Revolutionary War first commenced. Would Green have officers in the Southern Campaign whom hailed from other states? Yes. Uh, how about Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, who would go on to become a general? Uh, Daniel Morgan will be someone whom will be mentioned quite uh, regularly uh, coming up in some other podcasts. He is from Virginia. We've already talked about Colonel Otho Holland Williams of Maryland, but another uh, colonel from Maryland named John Eager Howard will, um, will be um, mentioned. Uh, Captain Robert Kirkwood of uh, Delaware. Uh, cavalry commanders and Henry Lee, who would be the father of uh, Robert E. Lee. And uh, William Washington. I know I mentioned him uh, from a previous podcast, and... Um, and I uh, did something by error. I had thought that he was uh, a nephew of George Washington's, but it turns out that William Washington is a distant cousin uh, to George Washington. Other officers stationed in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, upon Nathaniel Green's arrival in early December of 1780 would include Colonel William Smallwood of Maryland, Isaac Yugi from South Carolina, and... His last name is spelled H-U-G-E-R, but it is pronounced Y-O-U-G-E-E. -E. Each man, each of these men had served in the Revolutionary War's outset as early as 1775 to 1776. Um, then we have a Lieutenant Colonel Edward Carrington of Virginia, who was an artillery officer. Uh, we've already mentioned him, including William Davy of North Carolina. So... To sum it all up here, as we're getting near uh, the ending point of this uh, segment, would it be fair to say that Nathaniel Green has all the officers needed for long-term success? In other words, does will Nathaniel Green have any conflict to contend with? No. So in other words, he will not be dealing with any officers whom resembled Horatio Gates. But on December 2nd, 1780, the day of his arrival to Charlotte, North Carolina, conditions in the camps were so bad, folks, to where only three days of provisions were left. Can you imagine that, folks, arriving into a camp and seeing men barely clothed, men with little to no clothing, men whom are starving, men whom only have a few days left of provisions that can mean a matter of life or death. This is not a, a good situation. Although he's got all the officers, the bigger question is, is how can he um, get this thing turned around so that men are willing to stay um, and be a part of something uh, long-term, be a part of something that will restore morale, that will uh, give them hope 
because they're going to need all the hope and uh, faith in in this time of um, uncertainty. They, they, they need to have a light at the end of the tunnel. And Nathaniel Green can be the one to, to be their savior. But upon Green's arrival, but rather I should say by the time Green arrives, there's the message is simple. Nothing to be squandered. In other words, we're going to use our time wisely. We're not going to squander our time. But now that I'm here, we've got to get going. We've got to know all the ins and outs. We've got to know... Uh, the terrain, not just the terrain, we've got to know the rivers. We've got to know how the rivers function based upon each different season. We've got to know how uh, how we can go about transporting supply wagons. But we've got, to, we've got to know how to stay on the offensive. We've got to also know how to be on the defensive. And we've also got to do things irregular, conducting special ops, a.k.a. special teams missions, where we can strike at the enemy without any advanced um, warning. We've got to find now ways to wear down this enemy so that the longer they stay in South Carolina, the longer they are forced to stay in South Carolina, the longer um, it will take for them to um, be able to uh, go northward. Because after all, Cornwallis knows that it's not that much further in getting north into North Carolina and Virginia. But what Cornwallis doesn't know is that he's going to be going up against someone whom is going to do things so unconventional that Cornwallis will not know what's going to hit him. He may be in charge of, the, of, of what we think of as an elephant. An elephant can see things around, um, around it, but an elephant, can't, an elephant can only ward off but so much. In other words, mosquitoes come from all directions. But even an elephant can only protect itself but so far. So, nothing to be squandered. You know, for Nathaniel Green, we can sit here and have pity all we want, or we can get up and do something about it. Well, Nathaniel Green would rather do something about it, and so would his officers. So, this is, um, it's fair to say that in late 1780, we're looking at victory or death. For Nathaniel Green, it's going to be victory. It's not going to be a grand slam out of the park with one battle, but it's going to be a grand slam that's going to come with time. And by and through time, it's going to mean doing things irregular to where the opponent gets worn down over multiple, over multiple skirmishes, over multiple um, irregular um, fighting, but it, but it will be a, a system where the opponent will be worn down to where by the time they get to their place of destination, they will not be um, the same army as they were prior to, say, Nathaniel Green's arrival. Well, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And I should point out that when I am on the air next, we will be in part two of this book. How about that surprise? And part two will be about Calpens. What is Calpens? Well, it's a place up in the northwestern part of South Carolina the upper country. Take care for now, and I look forward to being back on the air again. Stay safe wherever you all may be.